I have a friend who was working on her computer this week when a message popped up on her screen, and it read, Your computer has been locked. It has been infected with viruses. Call Microsoft Technical Support. The message then listed a telephone number. What would you do if that had occurred to you? Well, at first my friend didn't know what to do. But she was anxious not to make matters worse for herself or the computer network where she worked. So she decided in that split second to call the phone number on the screen. A woman picked up and confirmed, yes, her computer was infected with multiple viruses and Microsoft support would need her permission to remotely gain access of her computer to clean it of the viruses. The woman assured my friend that that she would see every task that she would do, meaning she would watch as the cursor would move around her screen. And at any point, my friend could assume control of her computer if she felt uncomfortable. Then it suddenly dawned on my friend that this could be one of those computer hoaxes that you hear about. In other words, perhaps this wasn't Microsoft technical support that she was talking to. So my friend, now suspicious, asked, how do I know you are real? Last week, Holy Week, we followed Jesus, as he descended from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem to be greeted by palms and shouts of Hosanna, welcoming him as the king prophesied in Jewish scriptures who would restore the fortunes of Israel and and free them from Roman persecution. We then gathered on Thursday night and listened as Jesus told the disciples one of them would betray him. The disciples wondered for a moment who that would be, And then they began an argument, who was the greatest disciple? And Jesus, disappointed and perhaps even exasperated, said, I am among you as one who serves. On Friday, we gathered at the foot of the cross and heard Jesus breathe his last and read how disciples and the women who had followed him stood at a distance watching these events unfold, and no doubt they were heartbroken and disoriented, perhaps even kicking themselves for following a false teacher these past three years, because the king who had come to save Israel was now dying on a cross. Last Sunday we read how the women returned the next morning to the tomb and found the stone rolled away and and ran back to tell the disciples, Two of them, Peter and an unnamed disciple, ran to the tomb, peered in it, and the unnamed disciple, as the passage reads, saw and believed. This morning we continue in John's Gospel and remind that not only was the tomb empty, but Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection. 
Now, it's helpful to know the Gospel of John from where our reading comes this morning takes a slightly different approach in, in, in rendering the story of Jesus than do the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke. In John's Gospel, for example, Jesus teaches in, in discourses rather than in parables. It is in John, for example, we meet Nicodemus, a Jewish leader who comes to Jesus and to whom Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That's in John. What's also unique about John's gospel is the disciple Thomas takes this leading role. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Thomas is mentioned only in the listing of disciples. But in John, he, he steps forward. We first encounter John in, first encounter Thomas in John 11:16 where Lazarus has died and the disciples are wary of returning to Judea where people had tried to stone and kill Jesus. But Thomas says in a moment of bravado, let us go that we may die with him. Have you ever known someone who started out in life teeming with, with faith and with hope? with optimism and even bravado. But then something happened, and instead that person became skeptical, even cynical, and reluctant to take a chance. A few chapters later, that's the Thomas we encounter, as Jesus tells the disciples there is, is a home for them and for Jesus in heaven. And this time, Thomas says, in doesn't say in response, great news, Jesus. But Thomas says this, Lord, we, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Bravado has now been tinged with caution. In our passage this morning, which follows last Sunday's passage, everyone is now aware that the tomb is empty. The unnamed disciple has believed, and, and the women are convinced. But Thomas says in response to this news, except I see the print of the nails in his hands and put my finger into his side, I will not believe. How do I know you are real. My friend asked the woman claiming to be a Microsoft support representative. Have you ever found yourself in that emotional space? You were suddenly wary, skeptical, suspicious, perhaps in a work situation or in a relationship, or, or even somewhere along your faith journey. That on the belief spectrum, where, where the unnamed disciple who, who saw and believed is on one end, and on the other is Thomas, skeptical and suspicious, that's where you found yourself. 
Now, there isn't necessarily anything wrong in lodging ourselves at that spectrum, on that end of the spectrum. We've all been taken advantage of in life at one point or another. I still remember a sweet-talking used car salesman who coaxed me into paying for extra insurance on my used Toyota RAV4 in case something went wrong in the first year. Everything I read said this was the wrong thing to do and a total scam. I knew that, but this salesman was so convincing that in that moment I simply caved. I said, sure. When I came home and told Lynn what I had done, she just shook her head. (laughs) So I completely get it. When Thomas thought, Sure, Jesus just walked out of the tomb, and that's why it's empty. But except I shall see the print of the nails in his hand and thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. In other words, on the belief spectrum, he lodged himself in the same place as my friend who asked, How do I know you are real? But here's the thing. If there is a spiritual truth to be underscored in Scripture, it is this. God never gives up on us. Over and over again in Scripture, we read how God does something, everything that God can to to nudge us from that belief spectrum place, from from doubtful to faithful, to move us from full of doubt to full of faith. Our passage continues. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and and Thomas was with them. As a side note, I love the small detail that, yes, God does get around to nudging Thomas along that line between doubt and faith, but takes a week to do it. The resurrected Jesus had other things to do, other places to go. Then we read, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. On your bulletin cover, you'll find a depiction of that moment. It's a painting by Caravaggio, done in in the late 16th century. Now, Caravaggio was admittedly a a bit of a rogue. died young. But his work has captured the imagination of patrons in churches and museums for centuries. The painting on your bulletin cover, for example, is hugely popular immediately. 22 copies were made in the subsequent decades. And why was it so popular? I think because Caravaggio captures that exact moment when something shifted in Thomas and he took a step forward in that belief spectrum we're talking about. In our passage, it records how Jesus stood in the room and said, Peace be with you. Put your finger here in my side. 
stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Now the Gospel of John doesn't record that Thomas actually went and and put his finger in Jesus' side. Caravaggio is taking some artistic license there. But I suspect that Caravaggio's painting became so popular because it graphically reminds us that God responded to Thomas's doubt. Except I shall thrust my hand in his side, I will not believe. And God was willing to do that. So Thomas would, in fact, believe. Which is remarkable we stop and think about it. The Gospel of John, in other words, doesn't record that Jesus walked out of the tomb and immediately ascended to heaven. Rather, the one who, who conquered death, who revealed the, the impossible was possible, he deliberately chooses to meet people along that faith spectrum and to say, peace be with you. I know that many of you are fans of the author David Brooks, as I am. Perhaps you read his recent column where he wrote this. He writes, I've been playing a game in my head called There Should Be a Ritual For. For example, writes Brooks, there should be a ritual for when a felon has finished his sentence and is welcomed back into the community. There should be a ritual for when kids in modern blended families move in and join their lives together. There should be a ritual for returning soldiers in which the community assumes responsibility for the things the soldier did to defend the nation. These are rituals. And why are they important? Brooks suggests that rituals often mark doorway moments. Moments that acknowledge an external change and an internal transformation. Rituals acknowledge an external change and an internal transformation. What do they mean exactly? Well, Brooks points his readers to the work of Christian author Jim Clark, who adds this. Rituals do this. They can transform the way that, that we pray and we worship and we celebrate. And this week, those words caught my imagination and I realized as a community of faith, we engage every Sunday in a ritual of resurrection, in one of those doorway moments. Every Sunday, you see, we are invited to stand and to say to each other, the peace of Christ be with you. And we respond and also with you. And I have to admit, I typically thought of that act and that ritual as grounded in the teaching that Jesus came as, as the Prince of Peace. And while that is true, Jesus did come as the Prince of Peace. It is also true, as the Gospel of John reveals, we are recalling 
that moment when Jesus said, peace be with you. When although the doors were locked, Jesus entered the room and said to the disciples, peace be with you. We are invited, in other words, every Sunday to remind each other and to remember since Easter morning, nothing is really the same. There has been, as Brooks observed, an external change that invites an internal transformation. Or as Jim Clark writes, when a ritual is mindfully undertaken, It transforms us. Our prayers, our worship, and our ability to celebrate. Meaning every Sunday morning we are mindfully invited to become, or maybe better put, given the opportunity to become Jesus to the person beside us, behind us, in front of us a spouse, a brother, a sister, a friend, a person we've never met before, that when we stand and greet each other and say, the peace of Christ be with you, we are in fact recreating the room where Jesus stood and said those very words. We are reminding each other, in other words, when we say the peace of Christ be with you, He is risen. Peace be with you. The impossible is possible. Peace be with you. Life is stronger than death. Peace be with you. Stop doubting and believe. My friend, as it turned out, was correct to be suspicious. It wasn't Microsoft support she called this week. And she was right to ask in that moment, as was Thomas, how do I know you are real? But the good news the Gospel of John proclaims this morning is Jesus welcomes that question and meets us wherever we might be on that faith spectrum, from from doubtful to faithful. And Jesus says to each of us, peace be with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.